0: Welcome back to the Word on Fire show. I'm Brandon Vott, the senior content director at Word on Fire. Today, we're sharing with you a talk given by Bishop Barron at the 2021 Focus Seek Conference. If you're not familiar with Focus, they're one of the premier Catholic campus ministry organizations in the world. They send missionaries to college campuses, both Catholic and secular, all around the United States and now other countries as well, producing tremendous fruit, leading so many young people back to Christ and his church. They're one of the shining lights of the new evangelization, and we have so much esteem for them here at Word on Fire. Every couple years, Focus holds a big conference known as SEEK, um, it's dynamic, full of zealous young people, all loving the Lord and wanting to follow him more deeply. I was had the privilege of attending the conference a couple years ago, and there was over 15,000 people there. It was amazing. Uh, unfortunately, in 2021, because of the coronavirus, the conference had to go virtual like many other conferences. And so Bishop Barron pre-recorded this message, which he was offering to the virtual attendees of the SEEK conference. It's titled, The Identity of Jesus. And in this talk, Bishop shows how Christ had the authority to fulfill the law of the Old Testament and then to bring about the will of God through the church. It's a fairly short talk. It's only about 18 minutes long, but it's very profound, very punchy, and I think you'll really enjoy it. Before we get to the talk, though, we have a request for you. We don't do this too often, but this project is of such significance that we thought we'd ask for your help. You've probably heard about the Word on Fire Bible series. In fact, if you're listening to this podcast, I'm very confident you probably have held the Word on Fire Bible in your hands. I hope you have a copy of Volume 1, which covered the Gospels. If you do, you know how stunningly beautiful and high quality this book is. Indeed, we call it a cathedral and print We're so proud of its wonderful design, its profound commentaries, the artwork that illuminates the words of Scripture in new ways. It's unquestionably one of the most powerful tools we've ever created for the work of evangelization. We've been extremely gratified with the response to this Bible. I think we just crossed 200,000 copies sold. So 200,000 copies of this Bible are now circulating around the world. That overwhelmingly positive response gave us so much encouragement and resolve to proceed with this series of taking the same Word on Fire approach to the remainder of all the books of the Bible. The next volume, Volume 2, which will be released early next year, will include the balance of the New Testament. So that's the Acts of the Apostles, the letters of St. Paul and others, and then the Book of Revelation But we need your help. We need your help not only creating this next volume, but the entire series. We're sketching out plans right now to complete this project, and it's looking like it's going to involve seven volumes and probably take around 10 total years of time to complete. This is a magnificent and ambitious project. It's the project of a lifetime. This is the Bible project of of our generation, and we want to invite you to help be a part of it. We need your support in helping to underwrite the tremendous ongoing and upfront costs of this vast project. Those costs include the work of the editors, the designers, the proofreaders, the dozens of people working on this. Also, we need to cover the copyright fees, the royalty fees for using the various texts we include. And then of course, the licensing fees for all the amazing artwork we use in each volume. And, of course, we incur our biggest expense with the printing and the binding of these Bibles, which are completed with the highest quality. Again, if you've held this Bible in your hands, you know this is a premier book. It's made with the highest quality leather, top quality pages, ink, and printing. The binding is made so it won't fall apart over time. There's simply no other project more deserving of Word on Fire's commitment to the use of beauty and evangelization. So, As we continue work on Volume 2 and continue producing future volumes, please consider supporting what might just be Word on Fire's largest, most ambitious, and most important project ever. With a gift now of $85 or more, you can help ensure the completion of this endeavor and claim your copy of Volume 2 of the Word on Fire Bible when it's released in early 2022. You'll be one of the very first people to receive it. So visit the website, wordonfire.org bibleproject Bible project, wordonfire.org slash Bible project. I'll also include a link in the show notes. So if you're listening to this on your phone or on a website, just click the link in the show notes that'll take you right there. We've created a special page where you can get a first look preview at volume two. So you get a peek at what it's already looking like now and learn how you can support this entire project. Again, this is the Bible for our generation, and we want you to be a part of it. We want you to help bring it to completion with us and participate in this great work of evangelization. Again, wordonfire.org slash Bible Project. Please come join us in making this a reality. Well, with that, I'll turn you now to Bishop Barron and his great talk, The Identity of Jesus from the 2021 Focus Seek Conference. Enjoy.
1: Well, greetings to everybody. I am just delighted to be addressing the Seek 21 conference, even if it has to be in this virtual way. You know, I've said this before many times publicly, but I'll say it again. I think Focus is one of the great ministries of its kind anywhere in the world. So I believe in what you're doing. Delighted to be able to be a participant in your conference this year. And furthermore, I was delighted when I got news of what you wanted me to speak about. So the committee proposed a topic, and for me it was, the identity of Jesus. There's nothing I'd rather talk to you about than Jesus. He's everything. He's the Alpha and the Omega. He's the name above every other name. He's the standing or falling point of our faith. Everything centers upon him, revolves around him. What's the most fundamental claim the Church makes about Jesus? It's this, everybody, that in the singularity of his person, he is the coming together of divinity and humanity two natures —divine and human— coming together in the unity of his person, without mixing, mingling, or confusion. As such —and I want to stress this right away, that can sound kind of desperately abstract— but as such, Jesus is the fulfillment and culmination of all the great institutions of Israel. Think of temple, think of prophecy, think of Torah, think of law, covenant. All of it was designed to bring divinity, and humanity together, to reconcile God and his people. All this happens in the most unsurpassable way in the very person of Jesus, where the two natures, divine and human, come together. That's why we say he's the fulfillment of Israel. That's why we can say with Paul he's the yes to all the promises made to Israel. Furthermore, it's why we say he is our salvation. If Jesus is simply divine and not human, then we're not saved. If Jesus is human, simply, and not divine, then we're not saved. That's the way Saint Athanasius put it long ago. Our salvation depends upon the coming together of divinity and humanity. Think for a second. It's a very common view today that Jesus is a great ethical and moral teacher. Okay, if that's all he is, then he's in the same boat we are. If he's not divine, he needs to be saved as much as we do. But turn that around. As the Church Fathers said, what has not been assumed has not been saved. If he's not fully human, then we have not been saved. The great orthodox teaching of the Church is meant, finally, to preserve the dynamics of salvation, because that is what happens when divinity and humanity come together. Now, up and down the centuries, you know this. Heretics have emphasized, in a one-sided way, divinity or humanity. Think of the Monophysites, the Docetus centuries ago, who overemphasized the divinity of the Lord. But think too, of the Nestorians who overemphasized his humanity. I'd say today we're much more Nestorian than we are Monophysite. We tend to overemphasize the humanity of the Lord. The trouble with all these heretical positions is they undermine the fact of salvation. So, for us today, and for you in your missionary work, you're going to come up against this problem of you know simply humanizing Jesus making him one interesting religious figure among many. We need, I think, especially today, to emphasize his divinity. Now, why do we say it? What's the warrant for claiming the divinity of Jesus? I would say this. Though he is, like Abraham and Moses and and Jacob and Jeremiah and Isaiah, sent — so all those figures would have said they were sent by the God of Israel— And Jesus, too, says, I'm sent. Nevertheless, Jesus speaks and acts in the very person of the God of Israel, which makes him qualitatively different than any of the other sent figures who came before him. Jesus is presented consistently in all the Gospels as the one speaking and acting in the very person of God. Now, let me try to show this with just a few examples. But see, once you get this, everybody, you see it everywhere. You see it, in fact, as the primary purpose of the Gospels. The Gospels are not there to say, oh, look at what a wonderful ethical teacher he is. The Gospels are there to say, this is the one who is God." A few examples. Jesus says to the paralyzed man, my son, your sins are forgiven. And the bystander's remark, Why does this fellow speak in this way? It is blasphemy. Who can forgive sins but God alone? That's Mark 2, 4 to 7. You know, when I was coming of age, we were taught wisely that the synoptic Gospels —Matthew, Mark, and Luke— are a low Christology, emphasizing the, the humanity of Jesus. And only in John do you find this very high Christology, emphasizing his divinity. Can I just say to everybody, that's so much nonsense. That statement here —now, it's using a, a more of a Jewish symbol system and context— but that statement from Mark 2 is just as high a Christology as anything in the Gospel of John. How about this? Throughout the Sermon on the Mount, so in Matthew 5, 6, 7, Jesus says, "'You've heard it said, but I say.'" <laughs> now, we might just you know pass over that little statement. Trust me, in the first century, in a Jewish context, they didn't pass it over, because what he was referring to there was the Torah. You've heard it said, in the highest possible authority there is, the Torah that was given to Moses. But I say, that took their breath away, because he was now claiming the authority of the one who spoke to Moses. How about this? In reference to himself, Jesus says, "You have a greater than the temple here." That's Matthew 12:6. Jacob Newsner, you know, the great American Jewish uh, theologian, wrote a book about Jesus. Uh, Pope Benedict liked it a lot. And he said, "You know, if I were following Jesus and listening to his teaching, I, I would have liked a lot of what he said. I would have followed him until he said that. Newsner said, "Then I would have walked." Now, you see why? For a first-century Jew, a temple, the dwelling place of God in practically a literal sense. The temple, the holiest possible place because Yahweh, the God of Israel, lives there. Therefore, for Jesus to say in reference to himself, you have a greater-than-the-temple here, that means he's the dwelling place of God. And they didn't miss that. That's why it was such a strange, Breathtaking thing for him to say. How about this? Referencing his own teaching, Jesus remarks Heaven and earth shall pass away, but my words shall never pass away. It's Matthew 24, 35. You know, I've written a few things in my life. <laughs> if I were to stand up before you and hold up one of my books or articles, and if I were to say, Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will never pass away. I mean, you'd you'd have me institutionalized. I mean, you'd call somebody to help this poor, deluded man. Who could say such a thing about his own words except the one who is himself in person the eternal word? And this? Unless you love me more than your mother and father, more than your very life, you are not worthy of me." It's Matthew 10, 37. Again, we could imagine maybe a religious teacher or founder saying, unless you love God more than your very life, unless you love God more than your mother and father, the things you love most in the world, you're not worthy. (laughs) But to say it of yourself, unless you love me, more than the highest goods in this world, more than your very life. You're not worthy of me. The only one who could legitimately say that is the one who is, in his own person, the highest good. You know, that story of the calming of the uh, the storm at sea, which you can find in all four Gospels. Great nature, miracle —yeah, of course it was. But no first-century Jewish audience would have missed the overtones of that. Jesus, who calms the storm. Throughout the Old Testament, we find references to God's power, Yahweh's power to still the storm. Just one of many is Psalm 107. Then they cried to the Lord in their trouble, and he brought them out from their distress. He made the storm be still, and the waves of the sea were hushed. I love, in John's version, Jesus walks on the water. Again, they wouldn't have missed the reference to the very beginning of the book of Genesis, when the Ruach Yahweh, the the breath, the Spirit of God, hovers over the surface of the tohu vabohu, the stormy, chaotic waters. Who is this man that even the wind and sea obey him? Do you see the implication very clearly for this Jewish audience is, this is the one who in his own person is doing what God alone can do. And so, everybody, in light of all of this, we can understand the famously weird question that Jesus poses in Caesarea Philippi. Who do the crowds, who do people say that I am? You know, again, if, if I were to say, uh, you know, I spoke to the Sikh uh, 21 conference. I, I mean, how, what did they think about my talk? Or, you know, what do people think about uh, some of the books I've written? Or, what are people saying about— those would be reasonable questions. But if I were to pose the question <laughs> uh, to all of you, who, who do people say that I am? <laughs> well, you'd think I'd lost my mind. And we hear this all the time in the Gospels, about how peculiar that question is. But It makes the point that the Gospels are not, first and foremost, interested in the moral teaching of Jesus. They're interested in who he is. Notice, please, everybody, the creeds that we proclaim every Sunday. Don't say a word about his teaching, but they are obsessed with The fact that he's God from God, light from light, true God from true God, begotten, not made, consubstantial with the Father. That's not some later Greek imposition. Don't believe people that say that. That's an instinct coming right up out of the Gospels themselves. They want us to know who this Jesus is. And now here's the point. This means that Jesus compels a choice, a decision, in a way that no other religious founder or figure does. And now, very important for all of you who are involved in missionary work — and I don't mean that you do this in some kind of you know, uh, some kind of violent way or imposing yourself— but it is implicit in the theologic of the Gospels that Jesus compels a choice. If he is who he says he is, well, I have to give my whole life to him, right? If he is God —not just one teacher among many, he's God— well, then my mind, my soul, my heart, my body, everything must belong to him. He's my everything. He is, indeed, the Alpha and the Omega. And —and this is what C.S. Lewis saw, of course, so clearly— if he's not who he says he is, then he's not a good person. He's not an inspiring, ethical teacher. He's a bad man. He's deluded. He's crazy. He's he's self-absorbed. Hence the famous C.S. Lewis trilemma. Either he's liar, lunatic, or Lord. The point is, you got to make a decision. The Gospels compel it. And doesn't Jesus himself say it? You're either with me or you're against me. Now again, everybody, I'm not proposing you do this in some aggressive way. But it is indeed implicit in the logic of the Gospels that Jesus compels a choice. Let Let me plant this in your minds. If you proclaim Christ, and people remain indifferent about him, you haven't proclaimed him adequately. Give me, in fact, any day someone who is against Jesus, after I proclaimed him, at least I've proclaimed what's decisively important about him. If they say, yeah, this guy who's claiming to be God, look, and I'm, I'm against that, at least I've adequately presented who Jesus is, he does compel a choice. Now, I've been focusing on the divinity of the Lord, because, as I say, in our time that's what's often overlooked. But I want to say just a few things in the last couple of minutes about the humanity of Jesus, because it's the coming together. If you hyper-stress the divinity, you're going to have all kinds of problems. That's the monophysite problem, that he's only one nature —right? monophysites That he's divine and human. Go back for a second to the Council of Chalcedon, 451 that says the two natures in Jesus come together without mixing, mingling, or confusion. How important that is. In other words, God's coming close does not result in the suppression or eradication of Jesus' humanity, but rather in the enhancement and elevation of it. Look at all the old myths. When the gods come close, the gods break into our world, people are incinerated, people are overwhelmed, people have to give way. Because the gods exist in a competitive manner, for them to appear, we have to cede. But look at the claim now of Christianity, that God in Christ comes close, but does not overwhelm the humanity to which he comes close. The logic that obtains here is the logic of the burning bush. The bush is on fire, but not consumed. Now, there's the opposite of the mythological imagination. No, no. As God comes close to a creature, the creature's beauty and integrity is enhanced, not overwhelmed. And so we say Jesus is true God and true man. I love how we can have Thomas the Apostle saying, "'My Lord and my God' to Jesus, and Pontius Pilate saying, "'Ecce homo,' behold the man." Both are true. In the measure that he's divine, he is fully human. And now, see, what lies behind that, everybody, or lies, rather I should say, is an implication of that? is that Christianity is the greatest humanism ever proposed. There is no philosophy, ancient or modern, that proposes a greater humanism than Christianity. Because we proclaim the divinization of our humanity, that in Christ, as the Greek fathers put it, we find theosis, as the Latin fathers put it, divinizatio, divinization. Our humanity is raised up, enhanced, rendered more beautiful and radiant by the presence of God. And so, as you go forth —I know today, believe me, I know — we're up against a a cultural view that often sees religion as oppressive, that it denies our humanity. Don't you believe it? Go forth with this incarnational confidence that it's when you proclaim the divinity of Jesus that you are also, by the same token, proclaiming the greatest possible humanism. That's that marvelous paradox at the heart of our incarnational faith. Don't be ashamed of Jesus, everybody. Proclaim Jesus divine and human with confidence, with joy, with panache. And you'll find your missionary vocation fulfilled. Great talking to you today, and God bless everybody. Well, we hope you enjoyed that
0: talk from Bishop Barron titled The Identity of Jesus, which he gave at the 2021 Focus Seek Conference. If you'd like to learn more about Focus, I invite you to visit their website, focus.org. Focus.org. There you can learn more about their story and about the tremendous ways they're evangelizing on college campuses throughout the world. Also, one more reminder to help us bring the Word on Fire Bible Project to the finish line. We just published Volume 1, which covered the Gospels. we almost done with volume two, which will take us through the rest of the New Testament. But then we still have five more volumes to go, which will take several more years. And frankly, we need your help to pull it off. We need your help to cover some of the big expenses involved with an ambitious project like this. So if you'd like to help and be a part of this generational resource, visit the website, wordonfire.org slash Bible project, wordonfire.org slash Bible project. The link is also in the show notes on that page. You can get a peek at volume two and learn how to support this project and make it a reality. Well, thanks so much for listening. We'll see you next time on the word on fire show.